Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Thanks very much for coming, and uh, welcome back to another Word in Your Ear podcast, which Dave and I started when we were still running Word magazine. And one of its star contributors was our guest this evening, who's written books about uh, Johnny Cash and Elvis Costello and Kate Bush and George Harrison, and has also broken some sort of record. I think I know some of you may have you know, strolled over from King's Cross, but he has come all the way from Scotland to be here tonight. So please give him a thunderous kind of round of applause. The great Graham Thompson. Now, I don't know if there's any connection between Kate Bush and... Uh, is there any similar characteristics? Kate Bush, Johnny Cash? I don't know. Does it, does, this is your seventh book, I think. It is. Line. Number seven. Lucky what, number what, seven. What, what, what was it about him that made you want to uh, write, write a book as opposed to just a, a piece in a magazine? I think it was that kind of that image, actually. The, the, the cartoon idea of, of Phil Line of, of this kind of quintessential rock star, platonic rock star with the leather trousers and the trues. gypsy earring. The trues. The trues. <laughs> And I always think, if, maybe if you start from that position where you maybe feel there isn't a huge amount of substance, and then you start listening to the music, and there's a kind of dissonance, I think, between the way he presented himself and his voice, I think, which was a kind of melancholy and quite a vulnerable, soulful voice, and then the lyrics as well. Um, yeah, there's a brilliant bit of the book where you describe his voice as, being, as a, he's a crooner, but he's been seduced by high wattage that's amplification. Right. I think that's yeah. true. Probably to his detriment, ultimately. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, so you start to listen, tune into the music and you feel there's maybe something more going on there beyond or behind the cartoon and behind the one-dimensional rocker image. And that, that, I find that quite interesting. It's probably the least music-led book I've written. I think it was more, I was more interested in his personality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Before going any further, can, yeah. I, can I just ask one question? Hmm. How do you have an authorised biography of a... That's a good Someone else asked that question. Uh, it's the estate. So in this right. case, it's the, his wife, Caroline. Leslie Crowther's daughter. Some of you may know that. Right. Um, and his children. He had two daughters. But presumably she what, gave permission to all her friends to say, this guy's all right, you can talk Were you approached by them to write it? I approached her, because she, right. she has never talked about him at all before. So, um, um, and we felt that the only way really to do a book about Philip Lyon, there's been a few in the past, would be to do it 
that way and to try and tell the story right. as it hasn't been told before. So I wrote to her and it kind of explained who I was and what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do it. And she got back to me and, and we took it from there. Um, she didn't intervene at all. She, she collaborated. She read the final manuscript. A lot of it was quite difficult for her, as you can probably imagine, because it's, it's, it's a sad story, ultimately. And it's, it, it, it's, you know, it doesn't end well, as I'm sure as most of you know. As we shall discover, <laughs> yeah. if, we, if we don't already know. Um, so she was very good. There was, there was no kind of vetoing or whitewashing, and, and uh, that's, that's how it's authorised, yeah. But we wanted to start... Well, this is an obvious place to start, because, I mean, he was a, uh, an English-born, uh, black, illegitimate Irish Guyanese, if that's the, correct. The, Those the, are his parents. His father, uh, Cecil Parrish, known as the, uh, the Duke, who he virtually never met. We'll tell right. that story later. And that's his mother, Philomena, who had had three children by three different men by the age of 21. So quite a, quite a, you know, quite a chaotic life, I think. Yeah, say. it's not your archetypal upbringing. No. Um, and the, the Irish Afro Guyanese. So did he feel he was, a, he, obviously he was an outsider? And he's quite defensive, isn't he? Uh, he was. And those first, you know, he spent the first seven years of his life living in England. Um, it wasn't until he was seven that he went to live with his grandmother in Crumlin, Ireland. So he was moving around, a very itinerant and, and, and hard-scrabble kind of upbringing in those first seven years in the, the northern towns of England and cities. Um, two, two, two younger children who were put up for adoption. And, and you know, it's still open to dispute how much he knew about those kids. And, um, so it was very difficult, and he never really talked about him. And I write in the book, you know, the old, the old Jesuit saying, give me the child for the first seven years and I'll show you the man. And I think, yeah. I think the difficulties he had in that time, and he never really talked about them at all, um, were quite significant for the way he viewed himself and, and the way he, you know, he lived the rest of his life. But he grew up in sort of boarding houses and halfway hostels and utter chaos. And possibly worse. I mean, the, yeah. you know, some of these people are still alive, so there is a limit to, to what, you know, still what we can say yeah. about it. But, I, yeah, it was a pretty hairy environment, certainly. Well, I thought we'd just mention, because it fascinates me being English, and I don't know that much about it, but the show, the show band, the show band. circuit of mm. Ireland. So he, Rory Gallagher is actually the, in the picture there, who's actually a year older than uh, Phil. He's at the front there. But, I mean, it's one of the things that he achieved, is that he was kind of one of the first kind of homegrown Irish rock stars to break out of this circuit, because they all grew up, anyone who was a musician went into a band to play covers for the top 40, didn't they? That's right. All so of them, explain that, how that worked, the show band. Van Morrison was an Van Morrison was yeah. yeah. Um, well, there were, were generally seven-piece bands, so there would be your traditional drums, bass, guitar, singer, usually a three-piece horn section. And they had the ballroom circuit of Ireland tied up, so these were the, the big venues, the, the more professional venues. And they would, as Mark said, they would just play the, the songs of the day, the top 40, they would learn them, they would play them without any great deal of expression. Or There's a great quote about Eric Bell being in one of these bands, who was the guitar player in Thinless and he tried to do some kind of fancy solo. And one of his bandmates said, knock it off Ravi Shankar. <laughs> <laughs> Ravi Shankar, that's brilliant. Docked five so, pounds. That, that was the kind of artistic uh, level of, of expression <laughs> that people brilliant. were interested in. So, and they had, they had the whole of the, the show band circuit basically tied up. So what you had on, on the level two or three rungs below that were these little beat groups that started coming out that wanted to do something a bit more interesting. And that, that was for Philip. I mean, he, as you say, he never... There's a question of whether he ever would have been allowed in a, in, in a show band because he was black. And I'm not sure, not. yeah, they possibly wouldn't have, wouldn't have had him in there. Um, but trying to escape from that was very difficult. And even when Thin Lizzy, when they left Ireland for London in 1970, they, they had just 
got to the level where they could play the proper venues. You know, they were playing tennis clubs and church halls and all that kind of stuff. When they were met with signs on all the boarding houses saying, no blacks, no Irish. That's, That's right. right. That's yeah. astonishing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Think about it now. This is, uh, well, this is his first group when he was, I think, 14. That's him on the far right. Uh, the Black Eagles, is that right? And they were kind of covered. They did four nights a week. Playing well, they were called the Eagles before Philip arrived. That's and right. then yeah, yeah. they were the Black Eagles. Oh, really? Yeah. That was yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what would uh, they have played? What sort of material would they have played? What songs? They would play uh, Beatles. They would play You Really Got Me by the Kinks. They would play maybe a bit of soul music, Otis Redding. Um, but yeah, the beat, the, the beat groups of that day. Um, and there was st- I mean, it wasn't a hugely expressive catalogue or repertoire. It was still the pop hits, really, but with a little bit of an edge and a bit of... He was always into soul music. Um, yeah, so it, it would be those sort of pop standards but done with a little bit more aggression and a bit more energy. And who would, who would they be playing in front of? Other teenagers? Or? Yeah, it would right. be church, church halls, halls, tennis halls, um, hops, you know, or right. afternoon clubs on a Saturday, uh, the Flamingo Club and Grafton Street and places like that. Was, he already, way, was he already starting to identify himself as a bit of a, a, a ladies' man on stage, even at that stage? Yeah, but he was, very, he was actually very shy on stage when he started. He was, he was, quite, introver- he was quite an introverted person. Um, and I think because there's great stories about him arriving in Dublin and it was like someone had dropped out of thin... There was precisely four black people in the whole of Dublin. <laughs> 600,000 people. And they knew each other. So it was, stuck you know, together for safety. Someone described him in the book as being like a peacock. You know, it was just automatically an exotic creature. Was, and the kids at school would line up to touch his hair, you know, because he was this exotic guy. So he was, I think he was used to the attention from a very early age because... Uh, he would, you know, he literally stop traffic walking down the street. Um, so coming from that, I think he did get used quite quickly to a bit of female attention. Right, right, yeah. right. right. Um, this was uh, Skid Row, the group that he joined when he was 18, and there he was on the right. And, uh, yeah, and you say in the book that, as you were saying, he was very, very shy, and he didn't have much self-confidence and not much idea of stagecraft. And, I mean, how did, how did that develop? I mean, Very slowly, actually. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even in the early stages of Thin Lizzy, when they were a trio, I don't know if you know, but Thin Lizzy were really effectively two bands. The, the, the first few years, they were a trio, and then the classic lineup with Scott Gorham and Brian Robertson, which we mostly recognise as the, the classic yeah. Thin Lizzy with Boys Are Back in Time. Um, but in the early part, he, you know, he was playing bass and singing, which, Mark, as you know, can be quite <laughs> tricky. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, nice of you to put to me do at that level. Fellow um, <laughs> yeah. so, professionals. Well, yeah. well, also being the ladies' man as well. You yeah, know, all, all these things. They, I think yeah. you can identify yeah. with us. Bearing um, the pressure of all that. <laughs> yeah, go on. Sorry. So yeah, he was he was kind of noodling away on the on, a, on an instrument he hadn't learned very very well anyway. Um, and he was very shy. People talk about him being, you know, he's very tall and gangly and kind of hunched over and not necessarily looking people in the eye. And, and, uh, There's a great a, a headline in the, in the paper, in the Evening Herald, which is, Group Perform Blasphemous Song at Local Dance. <laughs> what, was the, what was that again? They had some projection, they were projecting <clears throat> images of the Pope or something? Well, this was them under the influence of the Grateful Dead and the Velvet Underground, which was trickling over very oh, right, slowly right. To, to Dublin. <laughs> and they were playing, you know, liquid lights and all this stuff. And they had this idea of doing a back projection when they were playing, I think it was Sky Pilot, I think was the song they were playing. Um, And so they were mixing footage of the JFK assassination with um, the Pope's visit, or the Pope's Easter address to the Vatican, and this caused absolute outrage. You can imagine how it might. (laughs) Kennedy, you know. Yeah, but they would do all these funny things. They would do little skits on stage where they would would sort of mock amputations, and they would do um, scenes from the Defiant Ones, where Philip was Sidney Poitier uh, 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 and uh, Anthony Curtis. Um, So, yeah, there was... 
a kind of theatrical element to the band at that point. So, and you can imagine in a very small scene like Dublin, where there wasn't an awful lot of that going on, they made an impact really quickly. So who were the other bands around at the time in Dublin when they were there kicking was, around? There was a band called The Method, which Gary Moore was in for a while. There was um, a band called Elmer Fudd. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. Which I've heard of them. Have you? Yeah, yeah. My yeah, God. Yeah. I don't it's a cartoon character, Elmer <laughs> Fudd. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Not him, but the what, what, what sort of music did they what kind of It was kind of, kind of getting towards heavyish rock, but there was a lot of soul influence at that time in Dublin as well. Yeah. Um, sort of 67, 68. But, um, and the band that became Air Apparent, which were... Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Ernie too. Graham and all that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but they all had to leave, of course. I mean, there was, there was no real... There was nowhere to go. No, there was nowhere to go yeah. in, in, in Dublin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is him again around that time on his 18. I like this picture very much. In fact, I actually had one of those wristbands. Oh, yeah. oh yes. Snakeskin wristband <laughs> with a leather thong. Beautiful. And, uh, yeah, they were a popular item. Oh, they were a very popular item, yeah. And uh, it, I put that in there because, you know, he, he was going through the stage, as everyone was, of thinking of Bob Dylan not as a, a, a songwriter, but as a, as a poet. Yeah. He wasn't a lyricist. He was a poet. What he wrote was poetry that was set to music, which was somehow putting song lyrics and the art of craft of songwriting on a completely different level and he, he was reading you know James Joyce and Flann O'Brien and um, Yeats and just soaking up a huge diversity of kind of Irish culture wasn't he? He was it's, I mean it's, I think it's a really interesting period just prior to then Lizzie forming where he's hanging out with all these different artistic groups in Dublin and there's the sort of bohemian Doctor Strangely Strange who I don't know if anyone remembers are the sort of I don't know, Very the Irish so. Incredible String Band. <laughs> well, well, still members, around. Members of the Incredible String Band yeah. came and stayed in his... That's right, Robin Williamson came and stayed and, right. and meditated in the, yeah. in the house and everyone was just blown away by this. Uh, so, yes, so he, and he was, you know, he was writing poetry. He was the folk artist as well around at that time. Um, I sense someone who was trying to find direction, really. You know, it was always about where does this lead? Where can I get out and, and, and make a mark? Um, and he did have a very kind of literary side, um, you can hear that in the lyrics, less and less so perhaps as it goes on, but he did aspire certainly to poetry. And he took a book around with him and wrote yeah. stuff down all the time. He had a sort of gypsy bag with a book and he was always making observations. And um, he, I mean, researching the book, I mean, the amount that he revised his lyrics and was constantly working on his words, I was quite surprised by actually. Yeah. There was always different versions and always moving around different verses. Um, so, yeah, and, and he, you know, the first song he wrote was very much, I think it was called The Death of a Fawn. You know, it was this very, <laughs> very fey. Very fey. It's the not the rocker, you know, it's not jailbreak. He didn't talk about that in interview. No, he didn't, no. Um, <laughs> Death of a so that's, the, that's the influence of, of, of the meditating Robin Williamson, the incredible exactly string what band, it is. probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. they were slightly older. These are, these are graduates at Trinity College. You know, these are quite, for a boy from Crumlin, he's a very working-class guy, he was suddenly in quite heady, Academic atmosphere. And describe the orphanage because that was a sort of well, sort of commune really that he lived in when he was. It was about, yeah. About this, this time, this big house called the orphanage, which was um, down near the canal in Dublin, and that, that was Doctor Strangely Strange kind of ad hoc headquarters um, where people could just come and doss and stay the night and have parties and smoke dope and write songs called "The Death of a Fawn." <laughs> um, so, and he was he was the sort of junior member of this band, and I think it was very influential for him. I think you know he he released two books of poetry or lyrics we could call them depending on your dispensation and um, there was clearly a part of him who really wanted to be accepted I think by that crowd and, and that kind of literary level and that seemed to seemed to drive him for a while and I think 
when his lyrics maybe start to tail off, that was one of the disappointments in his life, that he wasn't maybe recognised in that Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Yeah. This is the shot from about two years later. I love this. This is it's him great. doing... He's, well, he's a model. He's actually modelling, wasn't he? He is modelling. He's a modelling shop for a fashion magazine in, yeah. in, in Ireland. And he would have been 21. And obviously, huge influence of Jimi Hendrix now. <laughs> uh, fairly obvious. <laughs> uh, in the way he dressed and also in his music. But there was um, a bit in, in the book where you described the... Um, how he was always interested in the Lothario, the gunslinger, the gypsy, the cowboy, the vagabond, you know, all those, uh, the Johnnies and the Randolphs and the Rockies, those characters who appear yeah. in his lyrics. Now, where did all that come from? That came from the movies, was it, and books? And where, where, where did he get I would that? say mainly movies, but also yeah. I think the, the lack of a father, I think you can always, you can see him trying to fill that role and also fill it for himself. I think something to aspire to for himself because he yeah. didn't have that role model. So they're coming down off the movie screens and, and you know, littered with cinemas in Dublin at that time so they were always going to the movies and I think yeah it was trying to find some kind of place in the world I suppose in a, a sense of his own masculinity because yeah. he, as you said his dad was his nickname was a duke and he had this reputation I think as a real ladies man and a sharp dresser and um, that picture you showed you know he's got a, he's got the small moustache that, that yeah. Philip you know later cultivated himself so I think it's really about trying to yeah to find his place and to, fi- yeah. to find his father but also find his own sense of, of manhood as well his phenomenal appetite. You, you, again, you say that he, he was either working, having sex, or smoking, or talking, or asleep, really. That, that's, that's pretty much that's, it. That was it, yeah. really. That was the diary for most of <laughs> us. <laughs> got up, yes. But, but, but what was amazing is that he did get up. You know, he did get up every morning. Yeah. He was up at 8 o'clock in the morning. Everyone said how, how together he was for such a long time. Yeah. You know, he would work very hard, he would play very hard, he'd get up in the morning at 8 o'clock, and he'd be ready to do it again, yeah. looking immaculate. Um, so he did have an, an amazing chemistry, I think, and capacity for, for life, yeah. This is the, I think this is the, making the first Thin Lizzy album. Is that, so that'd be Eric on the right, and that's Brian Downey, the drummer in the middle, and that's him. And, and uh, I'm not sure if I can recognise the people at the back. Is it, is it um, some of the record company? It's sort of various producers and roadies. Oh, and, that's right, and, yeah. Yeah. And what was he trying to, you know, what, what could he do? The local sophisticates. Yeah, it's just right. Yeah. That's Stylish. It's another fashion shoot. Of that's, um, yeah. that's Ted Carroll. I don't know if you know oh, Ted, Ted Carroll. Carroll. Yeah, that's right, yeah, of course it is. Yeah, yeah. But what, what was he able to do forming Thin Lizzy as he had there that he hadn't been able to do before? What, was the, what, was he, what did it allow him to do? I think it just gave, it gave a focus to what, all the different energies that he'd had. You know, he was toying around with folk music and poetry and... Um, soul music in Skid Row a lot of the time and it just, I think Eric Bell who was a, an amazing guitar player, a great blues guitar player yeah. he kind of sharpened that idea of where the music could go, Brian Downey is a, a great drummer, they gave him a very solid bedrock and also as a three piece you know, one of his conditions of being in the band was that he played bass and that they played his songs, so it was the first time where they actually started to write and perform his own songs which I think was always what he wanted to do So, um, but it took them a while, I mean the first three or four records Thin Lizzy are they're, they're patchy, you know. There's, there's still a band, I think, trying to find its identity. Yeah. And they were signed to Decca, weren't they? Yeah. Which, is, which is rarely the ticket to success <laughs> in the late 60s, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they'd done the, you know, and it, it took. Some... On the DRAM label, I think, possibly? No, it wasn't DRAM. Uh, label. Not, no, not no, even no. DRAM. Not even wow. DRAM. No. I'd, sorry, I just have to interrupt you because we were, we were at a literary festival in Larne, Wales, about uh, two weeks ago. And it was a moment where Tracy Thorne we was sitting in a group of people, Stuart McConey and Tracy Thorne. And Tracy Thorne got up and said, I can't believe this. David Hepworth and Mark Allen talking about whether or not the Rolling Stones early records were on the DRAM label. He said, I'm off to bed. <laughs> Basically, said, we're doing it again. We'll have to stop this. Well, Sorry about that. Exactly. It <laughs> yeah, wasn't the Rolling Stones, it was it somebody else. Yeah. Anyway, it was Decca, anyway. It wasn't DRAM. It was Decca, that's that sorted out. Yeah. Good. 
Yeah, please stay, the audience. Absolutely. <laughs> Don't leave. But they, they, they also toured, I think, at this stage with, uh, with Slade, was it? Uh, and, and that and learned a huge amount from watching Noddy Holder and everybody in, in the wings. Is that That's right? That's right. In yeah. fact, the, the, mirrored, the classic mirrored scratch plate that Phil Liner had on his bass, which oh, he used yeah, to, yeah, yeah. was inspired by Noddy's top Noddy's, hat. Oh, really? That's mirrored right. Because yeah. it reflected shafts right. of light across the yeah. walls. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was their first proper tour. They were playing four or five thousand seat of theatres. You know, and Slade were seventy two. They were the biggest band since the Beatles, probably, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, pop hits, and they, but they were a really energetic and loud and powerful and raucous band. And the first night they toured with them, they were the opening act, and they were kind of noodling away, you know, in the corner playing their slow blues. I think it was called slow blues, actually. Um, and they were off within two songs. And the manager, uh, Charles Chandler, was the manager of Slade at that time, and I think gave them a complete dressing down. And um, they returned two, two nights later with a, a much sharper set. And he started to look at how he could... And this is the start of him, I, I suppose, being that performer and showman. He started looking at how he could move on stage and how he could make that connection with the audience. Because before, I think it was very much heads down and noodle away. Um, which is astonishing, thinking about what he became. But he, he was a very introverted performer. So that was the start of that process. Um, so he, did he have to go through this, this kind of wall where he stopped looking into space and started looking at the audience, kind of yeah. making contact? Absolutely. In fact, Ted Carroll used to give him li- literally give him lines to say to the, the audience because he, he didn't have anything to say. What kind of thing? I'm just like, hi, how are you? You <laughs> <laughs> had to be given that on a piece of paper. It was like, hi, <laughs> how are you? Um, so well, to, to be fair, there's loads of bands who still don't no, do that, stuff like that. Actually. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so that that yes, that very much was, and I think, and so he started thinking about it. You know, I think it was very much a, a, a kind of clinical process with him. He, used to, he would go in front of the mirror and he would learn how to pose with the bass, <laughs> and. He, he started, uh, the mirrored scratch plate started out as a little canary. You know the little canary mirrors you get in, in budgie? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he hung that on the, on the end, the machine head of his bass. <laughs> obviously didn't work. Um, so he refined that. And a really he, pissed off canary. Yeah, yeah. And, sort of, yeah. So, and the canary wasn't there. Yeah, right? um, yeah so that, that was the start of him. I think th- he thought a huge amount about the band. It was very much an all-consuming thing uh, for him, so, you know, how it all worked and fitted together. This is the the lineup that had that when Whiskey in the Jar was uh, was a hit, which was sort of their first hit that got them attention, but also a kind of millstone round the neck in that they absolutely they start to detest this song, didn't they? They hated it even before they put it out. Well, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, because it was. I mean, Whiskey in the Jar is an old, old, old Irish folk song, of course, and it was very much what they were trying to get away from was that sense of, as he, you know, they called it the Paddies coming off the boat and, and that Irishness. And they always felt, and Philip always felt, I think, that as an Irish band in London, they were very much looked down upon and sneered at because their success in Ireland didn't really mean anything over here. Um, and that song was knocked up at a rehearsal and just, it was a classic record company thing of saying, that's not the B-side. That's so the they did it by mistake kind of thing. Pretty much, yeah. And then the next thing they knew... Well, the, the next thing they knew was, you know, people saying, is your next single going to be The Long Way to Tipperary? Yeah, you know, like, yeah exactly. Yeah, that, was, that was suggested. That was suggested, was, literally was, yeah, was suggested. Was it? Yeah, um, yeah. And he's you know, going, oh, my God. So everything they'd kind of worked Actually, towards. in the long run, it wasn't a bad thing because it gave some idea of the kind of Celtic flavour of it the did, group's music and that which yeah. really worked in particular. But also what, what they found out was people would come, to, they, they were playing bigger venues because they'd had a hit and people would come, you know, surge to the front for Whiskey in the Jar 
and then immediately scuttle back <laughs> to the back of the venue. Do a little jig. Yeah, when you slow blues or something. Like that. So it, again, it, it made him have to think about how this was going to work. But there's a really fascinating bit in the book where this is a hit, and so there's lots of press interest. He starts doing interviews, and they start asking him about his parentage. That's right. And uh, he starts talking about his father, and it reveals that he hasn't seen his father for years. And it's around this time, I think, that his father... He got in touch with him, didn't he? And strange, it, it was running a, Steve Hunter was running a stall in Portobello Road or something? Shepherd's Bush Market. Oh, Shepherd's yeah. Bush Market. Strangely, a, a hit comes and, and a father comes a bit, shortly yeah. afterwards. Happened to John Lennon. Yeah, Freddie, right. Freddie Lennon suddenly appeared, Freddie, didn't yes. he? Yeah. Oh. Knocking on the door. If you want, <laughs> right. if you want to find your long-lost father, have a number one have hit record. One, right. He'll right. find his way from He'll be right there. across the world. Yeah, yeah. But that's what, that's what happened. He did an interview where in Titbits magazine, which was a classic... That's seven, the that's place brilliant. to find your long-lost that's father. It. That's that what your father will be reading. Your long-lost father is reading that. But, but amazingly, yeah. he, he, didn't re- he, still didn't know anything, he still didn't know anything about him. You know, he, he was talking about a guy called the Duke, who was maybe Brazilian. That was his, that's as much as he knew. Oh, right. And actually, there were stories of him wandering up and down Portobello Road. Going into, he thought he was a barber, going into barber that's shops, right. going, do you know the Duke? And people were going, uh, you know... Why didn't he know very much? Is that because but, his mother didn't know very much or because his mother didn't tell him very I much? I think the latter, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, not much filtered down, I think, information. The stories of him writing letters to his dad uh, that his mother was supposed to pass on and they weren't passed on when he was younger and things like that. So it's, it's quite a complicated background. But yes. But um, they did meet, didn't they? They met in the mid And what, what happened? Well, it, it, it kind of fell flat on its face very quickly. I think did he take ex- a member of Thin Lizzy with him also? I can't remember. Well, Scott Gorham was Scott there Gorham. at the meeting and this... This guy, as he put it, this guy walked in looking like a superfly with a you know, white Panama hat and a, a white suit and white shoes. Um, the Duke, you know, here he was. But you know, he had a wife and he had, a, he had kids. And um, I think very rapidly the expectations that Phil might have had about this guy evaporated. And he was just a fairly normal guy running a hat stand in Shepherd's Bush Market, which is still there. Phil himself had a, a child. I've forgotten this completely. I mean, he right. had a child. It was just like, it's almost like that, something out of the, the movie Philomena. He had a his girlfriend got pregnant when she was 17 or something. That's right. Was sent away to the nuns. To the Isn't nuns. that right? Yeah. Until she'd had the child. Yeah, this was in the late 60s, so he was, he was only 18. 18. Yeah. And that had a very profound effect on him, though, didn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I think it did have a very profound And he told nobody. He told one person about it. Uh, there's certain songs you listen to, Little Girl in Bloom and things. Where Who you, did you, he tell? He told his friend Jim Fitzpatrick, who was an artist, because when he was doing his book of lyrics, um, this song, Little Girl in Bloom, which is about a, a young girl getting pregnant, and Jim was doing the illustrations and wanted to know what idea of what yeah. she looked like, and he actually told him that it was a real girl and described her to him. Um, but yes, yeah, so it's a, it's a son he never, he never met. Um, what a complicated life. It's yeah. Good, and, and the, you know, if it wasn't complicated The enough. old sins of the father thing. Repeating, Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, Completely. This is the, uh, what I think you'd call the classic lineup. A, a picture obviously stolen by me from the internet you've got the Getty Images copyright there. <laughs> Finn, Finn Costello. If Finn Costello, the photographer's <laughs> here, I'll give you a fiver later. I'm sorry. We know that. Finn. <laughs> well, we know him, anyway. We know him. But that is what I think you call the classic lineup. So this is uh, the. the it's a classic Brian trousers, Danny. isn't it? Right? A, a classic it's a classic trousers. pose as well, isn't it? Classic yes. pose, yeah. and it's Brian Robertson and Scott Gorham on the right. So, um, what, what was it that. that uh, Finally, got it to take off. Was it was it him hitting the kind of you know the signature twin guitar sound, or what was it? Do you think that made the difference? Or boys are back in town, or just partly just that song, I yeah. think. But yeah, yeah, I think. I mean, it was the sixth record, sixth album they'd done. They were on their second lineup. I think they were probably going to get turfed off their label if it hadn't happened then. Um, 
And is writing a change? I think that sort of more Springsteen-style kind of street opera, character-driven narrative, which was much leaner than his early stuff. Um, so what year are we talking about? Here? That would, Well, 76 would have been Boys Are Back in Time, Jailbreak. Yep. That's kind of when it happened. Right, right. 76, 77, 78, I suppose, was the peak of that. And they were lineup. just an unbelievable bunch of hellraisers. I just couldn't, I just couldn't... It just wouldn't happen now, I don't think. You know, but just the, the people wouldn't be allowed to carry on like that. They just Brian Robertson, in the middle there, just at one point, <laughs> bro, in a barroom brawl, broke his hand and just had to be thrown out of the group for six months because he couldn't physically play anymore. He couldn't play because he was no, stopped. Well, he claims he was stopping Frankie Miller being glassed by a member of Gonzalez. Um, <laughs> well, don't was, say anything about <laughs> Frankie Miller. I've already been sued by Frankie Miller yeah, once in my life. You went yeah. to court once yeah. over Frankie Miller. Yeah. We, so that, that was his defence. Um, yeah, it, just, it was c- catastrophic. Things keep going terribly wrong. He got hepatitis on an American tour. So they had to come home just as Boys Are Back in Town was breaking. They had to come back. Then when they were ready to go back again, Brian Robertson got his hand slashed in a barroom fight. Um, and later on, I think Gary Moore just walked out. And, Gary Moore just and left. mid-year of Ultravox, the short-haired, mustachioed mid-year was Amazing. flown in. Flown in. in Astonishingly. In play... his canary jumpsuit. Yeah, That's to, right. Um, <laughs> to play guitar and then keyboards. And then, it just, it, and then Snowy White came in, who's a very kind of laid-back right. blues guitar player. And... In fact, in this book, everybody passes through the pages of this book, don't they? Yeah, pretty briefly. much. Yeah. You know, every yeah. reprobate. You Johnny know. Thunders and he, Sid Vicious. He, he, and, oh, I'd forgotten about him. Yeah. Oh, he was he there is. for a week, you know. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Yeah. It, it, did, it did start to die. He was certainly a clubbable person, wasn't he? Literally. He kind of... He, he kind of <laughs> literally. <laughs> literally. <laughs> yeah. Attracted but there's some, I think there's something quite kind of heroic about the way that he grabbed that. I mean, I think in the 70s you could... You could be a rock star without having to say apologise for yeah, it or be ironic about completely. it. You see, I um, think this is a serious point. I yeah. don't think you can be a rock star in the age of social media. Yeah. Because you would spend every day apologising. Just saying sorry. And he was well, you really he would. Yeah. Pretend the whole thing was ironic, wouldn't you? Exactly. Because this wasn't ironic. This, was, this was what he wanted. What this was all he wanted to do. He then. got up and in the morning and he lived this life. Although, yeah. actually, interestingly, you say in the book that he was incredibly ruthlessly professional, which I, I mm. never really imagined. That you know, if, if somebody played a, dropped a note in the fourth bar, there would be some massive bust-up afterwards. So there would be. They were they called, they called him, yeah, Sergeant right. Rock, they called him. Oh, the really? bandmates. Yeah, Sergeant Rock. Because he would line, he would literally line them up and down and, and oh, tell them good. off. Yeah. And also that he was so charming. Uh, you know, the, the, the second most, uh, second best worker of a room in the world, you said. Second only to, to Freddie Mercury. To Freddie Mercury. So he went out and he would go and obviously into the secretarial pools of yeah. the, of the yeah. for other reasons, I'm sure, but right. would go in, into the record companies and meet all the girls personally and thank them for their uh, part in yeah. helping extend the marketing of his <laughs> records, you know. Yes, in any way they wish to, yeah. yeah. You know that uh, famous line that he used to use at the time? Oh, the little Irish, yeah, yeah. yeah th- oh. There may be people in this room who've never heard that line. The, the, the line about, uh, yeah, well, he, what he used to say on stage, I'm sure you all know it, it's on Live and Dangerous, I think, but he would say, has any of the girls here got any Irish in them? And there would be a pause. They say, would any of the girls like a little bit more Irish than them? There it is. And that was the... So what did he say every night? That was his level of of cut-up line. (laughs) (laughs) That was written for him by Ted Carroll. We thought it was hilarious in We thought it was hilarious back in the day. Yeah, I mean, it was... was, I just want to know, did he say every night? I think he put, it, it, it did become very rote, actually, the show. Yeah, there was... It didn't, I mean, that Live and Dangerous set, which was mostly recorded in 1976, they were still playing in 1983. I think the other thing, interesting thing about this lineup, you can't see him very much here, is that Scott Gorham was the other big heartthrob in that group, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah. So he, he was not afraid of having a bit of competition for... A, 
people's attention. No, he wasn't. But he was very competitive in that regard. He was very, he became quite compulsive. And there's people in the book, Graham Parker and Midge Ewer, Tony Visconti, who all had their girlfriends, you know, mercilessly hit upon by it. <laughs> oh, that's what yes, the thing is. gangling yes, into Graham Parker's got a really attractive girlfriend and, and lined at Caesar. And, and, and is really pissed off when he can't have her. I mean, yes. really, quite seriously, it ruins his night. And, uh, you know, that he can't There's have... A terrific new it's like book JFK about... used to get a headache. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a terrific new book about Paul McCartney just coming out, uh, which, uh, which makes the point that, uh, that even the Beatles wouldn't leave their, their new girlfriends in a room with Paul McCartney. And it's the same with him, wasn't yeah, it? They it was would the come same. back with their new girlfriends. They wouldn't dare leave them alone with Well, Phil. there's a great story about Bob, Bob Geldof being around at his house and, and Philip, there's supposedly doing cocaine, but Philip gives them a line of smack so that Bob goes off to throw up in the toilet... And Philip tries. Oh, to that get, old trick! Tries to get. Yeah, of course, we've all done it. Um, we've all done it. And he tries to get Paula Yates into bed as, as Geldof is shaking uncontrollably over the toilet bowl. Um, he's trying to woo Paula Yates, so he was incorrigible. But I think there was a sort of slightly darker, you know, compulsive side to that. Um, yeah, the hepatitis. You mentioned him getting hepatitis. Yeah. I mean, that that's quite a significant thing because uh, it reduces your the liver's ability to resist what it's being bombarded with. Is that right? That it generally right, yes. weakens your immune system. And, and well, at this stage, you just started taking ludicrous. The amount of booze is just yeah. phenomenal. Well, the recommendation the, is to stop drug. drinking when you get hepatitis, I think, for, yeah. forever. Um, <laughs> he went on to white wine, I think, for six months. Yes, with soft drinks. <laughs> oh, soft, soft drinks, white wine. And I think yeah. champagne was doctor's orders, as you said. Um, yeah. and, that, and that was six months, and then he was back on everything. And even more so. So, yeah, yeah, hepatitis is quite. Oh, we've gone the wrong way. Sorry, where are we? This is. Uh, I put this picture in because um, this was in 19. What, 78? Was it the Greedy Bastards? This yeah. was a group you formed, a kind of pub rock band, really. With, I'm um, trying to think if I can identify it. That's Chris Spedding, I think, second from the right. And the Chris Spedding. Row. That's uh, Paul Steve Cook, and that's Steve Jones of the Sex yeah. Pistols. Jimmy Bean down there. Oh, yeah, Jimmy that's right. And, uh, and Gary Moore. In fact, in fact several members of, Scott, of um, Thin Lizzy. Thin Lizzy yeah. So this but is when he was straightening up a bit, wasn't he? He was seeking some better company. <laughs> this, this is him, yes. Uh, <laughs> so, so, social climbing. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> let's straighten myself out. Two ex-sex pistols. Yeah. And, you know, and Jimmy okay. Bain, yeah. Um, but I thought it was interesting because he, he, he obviously made, he made a fair amount of money. You know, at one point he bought a house in, I think, the late 70s in, uh, by the gates in Kew Gardens for £250,000, a lot of money. Yeah. And he bought a house for his mother, etc. But he never really made a fortune. I don't know whether that was they simply didn't sell that many or, or the, the way the business was structured in those days meant you simply couldn't make those kind of quarters of money. I, I don't know. What they had was they had all their crew on a retainer 24-7 all year round. So with their management were constantly saying... You know, you're not Queen. You're not selling out arenas yeah, in America. Yeah. You're Hammersmith Apollo level. Uh, but uh, as, they, as the managers pointed out, you know, your guitar techs, your drug dealer. You know, they, they were part of the system of that band was having these people on call 24-7 to just run out and do whatever they so had that's to why do. they just toured the whole time. That's why they toured the whole time, and that became the, the lifestyle, really. Um, and I think that goes right back to the, you know, the show bands and the Black Eagles. He was doing that when he was 13 and 14, when he was at school. He'd be out two or three nights a week and maybe one weekend, you know, going off to Connemara or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, coming back at three in the morning and then crawling into the Christian Brothers school. So I think he was absolutely, you know, pickled in that lifestyle from a very early age of being a road band. And that's always seemed to be what mattered to him, I think, was how they did it every night, that, that live connection with his audience. But also the, in the generation before 
the kind of video boom. I always thought there was a line that suddenly appeared about yeah. 1979. Before that would be, uh, you know, the, the Jam, the Stranglers, Elvis Costello, um, Stones, whoever. And after that was the Human League and, and Soft Cell. And, and, and before that, you know, those people just were programmed to get up in the morning and go to work, weren't they? they just, yeah. Paul Weller still is. He just gets up in the morning, gets up guitar, case, goes on play. And they can't really run their lives when they're not in that structure yeah, of no. touring. They sort of fall well, apart. You know? Exactly, and he couldn't. That, that, that was, that, that's what happened in the end. Thin Lizzy broke up when he started a new band straight away because he had yeah, no, didn't no know structure. He had no, yeah. Scratching around yeah. Home, As Bob Geller said, you know, he had to put on leather trousers to go to work, you know, go to the shop around <laughs> the corner. Right. No, he, just, <laughs> he didn't know how not Getting to out be of bed in the a rock star. Yeah. He could not yeah. be filled um, with the liner. So, um, where are we? Wrong way again. I, don't I, don't like this. I, I love this picture. I love this picture uh, too. Because, um, you know, I think all uh, women, uh, you know, if, if, they, if they turn to the, the man they're about to marry in the church service and saw him, A, perspiring heavily, <laughs> B, clearly pissed, and C, laughing, sniggering about something, then I think that would give you pause for thought and turn concern. on your heel and go. You, you could just cut and run, run yeah. for your life. Yeah. Cut and run. It does tell a, 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 This is Caroline Crowther. Caroline Crowther's father, as you all know, was Leslie Crowther of, um, of uh, Crackerjack fame. Come on Never down, off the yeah. cover of TV Times with, right. uh, with Peter Glaze. And he had this brilliant moment. I, I remember reading an interview with him at the time when he said um, uh, about Phil had asked for his daughter's uh, hand in marriage. He said, you've had every other bit of a... <laughs> you've had everything as well. else. <laughs> 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 <No>. <laughs> But to tell us a bit about this, because you know, this is—I mean, there'd been a huge number of women. So, what was it about Caroline Crowther that made him decide to, to marry her and have well, children? Well, well, they had children first, so that might have been something to do with it. Yeah, um, the order right, <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yeah, yeah, they had they had two children by this point. Um, I think he genuinely loved her. You know, Caroline, who I spoke to for the book and who is now the estate and is a very smart woman. Um, and very clear-eyed about, I think, about what he, what he was. You know, it was a genuine relationship for a long time, and I think he had that classic thing where, on the one hand, he wanted to, he was a mummy's boy and he wanted to devote himself to one woman, and then when he was away from home, he was he just incorrigible and couldn't couldn't help himself. Always, I think, seeking some kind of affirmation from the female race. So, um, yeah, I mean, they were very, she was very young. She was only about twenty when they got married, and she already had two kids, and. Um, she yeah, it, it just tells a million a million words that picture, doesn't it? She it's she incredible. writes. She, there's a very nice afterword there in the book nice, that yeah. she she yeah. writes, and she says that in all the time that she knew him, was married to him, she was hardly ever alone with him. That he always had to have there was always someone around there, members of the band. There was whatever. one particular guy called Gus who was the, just the general lackey driver, and she had t-shirt, she had t-shirts made called "Where's Gus?" because literally <laughs> every every morning when Phil woke up, he would say. Where's Gus? And that, you know, that was how who would facilitate... You can't build a home life on... That doesn't work, does it? I don't Somebody think. who goes, where's Gus? No, where's Gus? Where's, you know, where's the kitchen or something like that? Yeah. No, where's Gus? Isn't uh, that the case for so many performing rock stars that they just, they can't operate for a split second during the day without an audience? They don't feel it's worth saying anything unless there's a large number of people yeah. listening. To yeah. It's just a waste of time having a conversation with just one person. And I think also that problem of perhaps being on your own, I think that's quite characteristic of a lot of rock stars as well. It's just that, how do you spend that downtime? Um, yeah. And he never seemed to be comfortable on his own, ever. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, he had two kids and he had a wife, but he, yeah. they had a but whole it, other entourage. Everybody says he loved the kids and liked being with them, but... Was still away. Yeah, see you. Yeah, you know, come back with lots of lovely presents. Yes. Uh, great fun for a couple of days, and yeah. then he's off to yeah. Oslo or whatever yeah. for that all-important solo tour. You know, so yeah, it's it's very hard. And uh, 
had Thinners split up? Well, this is 1980. No, they had split up. Still, they're still going with it. Yeah. This was after the stag do with, you know, Lemmy and whatever. Uh, oh, oh Christ. Right. <laughs> Lemmy organising his stag do? I think he did, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, Christ. So you finish up gaffer tape to a lamppost Basically. in your underpants. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's just dreadful. In the rainbow, yeah. Yeah. I put this... This is one of the several groups he formed when Thin Lizzy did split up. This is 1984, I think. And uh, it's, it starts to get a bit sad, the book, doesn't it? I, I think, think so, Because yeah. he obviously just can't operate without the group and without the attention, without that, as I said, that kind of framework in his life and starts to form a series of uh, decreasingly interesting bands. Absolutely. Like this one, Grand Slam. Yeah, sort of third-rate... Than Lizzie, really? Yeah, um, absolutely. With these very young, the only people who would work with them really were these very young, re- kind of heavy yes. metal guitar players who were quite priv- felt quite privileged to be in his orbit. Yes. But everyone who else who had, who had been with them for a while wouldn't play with them anymore. But I think it is exactly that. He just the alternative was staying at home and addressing his problems, sorting himself out. And, so, did uh, anybody and wh- try to sort him out? <clears throat> did anybody get hold of him and say no? You know, 12 steps or whatever. No, no. I mean, I'm not sure that was part of the narrative of that time. Really no, it wasn't. So much. Really yeah. wasn't. Uh, it wasn't. I think that's fascinating. It's quite at no point does anybody intervene and try and take him for a quiet walk around the block or, or suggest that he goes and dries out somewhere. They no. just kind of let him get on with it all. It's interesting that kind of background characters in, the, in, the, in your book uh, in Dublin are you two who are kind of coming along, yeah. aren't they? And that really is a shift to a completely different... Different way of looking at the world. Entire minds, different mindset. Bonnie was so scared that he wouldn't even go round to his house for dinner because he didn't yes. know what would happen. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's great. I, I better not. That, that was the new <laughs> I might never arrive. Out. Frightened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you've got this very fervent sort of new rock kind of rock and roll that's coming. Oh, through. quite Puritan. Quite really. Puritan, exactly. And as we said, you, you have to apologise for your rock and roll antics. Uh, well, probably I'm, started I'm, around yeah, then, didn't it? That yeah. and that live period. Absolutely. But, yeah. yeah. Um, and he was a, he was a which man interestingly, he wasn't invited to participate in which by, is still by his best friend. Well, the man he'd given the heroin to when he was trying to cop on his girlfriend. Like gave you all For some heroin. reason, Bob couldn't find it in his heart Bastard. to invite him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But also Mitch Ewer, of course, who was in, actually in oh, Thin Lizzy. in Thin Lizzy. Had um, and Chris Morrison. who was, he was very wounded by the fact that he wasn't invited. I think, I think really, it really was not. a real stab in the heart, yeah, yeah because... And everyone says, of course, you know, well, Lizzie would have been amazing at Live Aid. Can you imagine them reforming and playing Boys Are Back in Town? Who knows? That might just be a romantic idea of what it would have been like. He was quite far gone by that point, well, so I'm not I, sure. Well, he really must have been, because I'm, I, I only met him once. Did you ever meet him and interview him? No, no, no. I met him once in 1982. I was on a, on a private plane flying to Tyne T's television with a group called Musical Youth. Do anybody remember yes. them? Who had a fantastic record called Pass the Ducci Pong the Left Hand Side. Yep, yep. And, and I was travelling up them to write a piece for Smash Hits, where David and I worked at the time. And uh, I was sat next to Thin Lizzy. And Phil, it was 9.30 when the plane took off, and Phil ordered four of those miniatures of, of scotch and two little cans of Coke. Yeah. And I can remember him just slowly pouring them in, just drinking them one by one. Yeah. And thinking, this is unbelievable, really. And he was just so kind of bloated and sweaty and... It was just horrific. And it was. It was a hor- still really, four years more of this. To it was a horrible, de- horrible decline. It was yeah. actually from someone who, as we said, you know, someone who was very driven and together and kind of ran the whole show to someone who just couldn't get up in the yeah. morning and was living in absolute squalor, living with people he didn't really know. You know, there's a whole entourage of hangers-on by this point in his house who are just sleeping on the sofa. And he, yeah. Do you think it's because, <coughs> excuse me, that he got to a point in his career, they got big. But they never got really big. No, they didn't, yeah. 
And that kind of, it's difficult to live with that lack of momentum, isn't it? I think when so. When you're back in the same place, year it's, in, year Yeah, when you're out, back at Hammersmith Apollo, two yes. nights, three nights, Inverness ice rink, you know. Um, Amer- and America, you know, America just didn't happen. It, d- it didn't, no. it nearly happened and it kept... Why didn't it? Why didn't it happen? Because of, you know, Gonzalez and because of uh, Brian Robertson cutting his oh, hand. Or, it, it, it just and famously, Tony yeah. Parsons was sent by the NME to do Thin Lizzy in the States and, and peeled off and did Bruce Springsteen instead and they put him on the cover of the NME. There was also the Springsteen thing, actually, because he, he was kind of regarded over there as a, as a sub-Springsteen. Yes, that's right. Uh, yeah even though they both kind of came around at the same time, of course, Springsteen made it big first over there. Absolutely. And I think a lot of the press coverage did focus on that, yeah. which, which uh, didn't help. But, yeah, I think you're right. It just it became a, a very, very tedious circle they were yeah. existing in. And then you get things like heroin and cocaine. Just to, it's a, I mean, it's such an old story, yeah. isn't it? Just fill that void. Yeah. And, and it ends this, like is, that. this was no yeah. great uh, shock or surprise to anybody on the 11th of January 1986 when he would have been, what, 36, 35? 36. 36. Yeah. 36. And, um, you know, it, it's a really drawn out process. I mean, he actually was in sort of coma for a, a, 11 days or something? Or didn't, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Go unconscious for a while? Yeah, he, sort of, he, he collapsed on Christmas Day and then he died on the 4th of January, I think. Yeah, it, it was a very odd couple of weeks. He yeah. was kind of conscious for a while and he seemed to be getting better. But effectively, his entire system had packed up. You know, yeah. All his organs had basically ceased to, to work. Um, it's a, ter- a terribly sad ending. Really. Yeah. Um, and there's no way of... I mean, you know, the, the, the rock and roll debauchery side of it is good fun, but that's, well, there's no way of dressing up the fact no. that someone who's 36 and got a couple of kids and stuff. And I think has still a lot more to do. I, I do feel that he was someone who, if he'd taken... An, a break could have done something quite interesting. You know, his voice—I think his voice was very expressive—and uh, if he maybe just toned it down a bit, there could have been a lot more music from. But it. he was just panicked by being left behind. and just went totally. out and formed ninth-rate versions. Of exactly, the he used to be just an ab- absolutely yeah. panicked and, and terrified of stopping. Yeah, I think it was all, all it was. And, and how do I not be a rock star for a bit and see what? There's a great bit you wrote in your intro. Where is it? You said. Um, Philip rose and he fell, and somehow that rise and fall was simultaneous. Really good point. At times in this tale, Linnet looks like someone who threw it all away. At other times, he looks like a man who spun gold from a fistful of thin air. And, of course, he was both and more all at once. It's a really good point. This is a panic throughout the whole thing. that it's, He's got it, and he's losing it all the, all the time. And it is weird. that At that, that peak, the boys are back in town and jailbreak. It, all, it, it was already going wrong, even as it was peaking. It was yeah. quite extraordinary. That's thing. life. That is life. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's already it's, over when you think it's when, going when you, well. Yeah, and, he, and he, could, he could not relax into it. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, he could not enjoy it. Don't think it. it's going to happen yeah. again. No, no. Particularly in pop music, it's yeah. not going to happen yeah. again. You know? Yeah. Um, well, we're going to have time for some questions in a moment, but I've just, I've just got one more, actually, which is, which is after writing the book, what did you feel his real um, contribution, his real achievement was? I mean, there's, there's certainly an element that, that they'd, he'd broken the Irish tradition and allowed groups like the Boomtown Rats and U2 to kind of tunnel out after yeah, him. Yeah, definitely. But was that, was that part of it? Was that part of what he achieved, do you think? Or? I think so. I mean, if you, you could say it was even more you know, culturally wide than that for Ireland. I think, you know, in a sense, Ireland always had a, an inferiority complex. Um, and culturally, you've got this guy whose... His sexuality is very, you know, 
in your face. And I'm not sure they had anyone like that before then. You know, Van Morrison, who oh, he's not necessarily... Oh, that was a terrible thought. Cut from the same cloth <laughs> in the letter. You can't get it out of my head. <laughs> so, Van Morrison yeah. in your face. I think he did, he did sort of stand as a symbol of, of a new sort of confidence and masculinity for Ireland and a, and a new sense of self-expression. Musically, I think, you know, he brought... A, 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 we talk about poeticism and poetry, and I, I write in the book trying to distinguish between good lyrics and actual poetry. You know, they're very different things, but I do think he brought a, a real sense of poetry and, and um, atmosphere to rock music that made, a lot of other bands didn't do at that time. Yeah. And great, you know, Dancing in the Moonlight is a, is a great pop song. It's, they weren't just a rock band. I think he was a very gifted writer and a very gifted singer. Um, but I think Ireland is probably where his legacy, you know, they've got a statue of him in Dublin, and he is an absolute Rock statues never a good idea. It's not, it's not one of the worst ones. There, it, I, I, that is, is a pretty terrible. It's pretty one. bad, but it's, it's not Michael what, what Jackson. What does it look like? Describe the pose. The pose is, is he machine gunning he, an imaginary audience. No, he's sort of holding his bass, his bass is sort of standing up by his side. He's got a, one of those sort of cowboy western ties that come down there. He's very tall. Um, it's not great, I'll admit, but it's, it's not but the it's worst. There. It's not the worst I've seen, you know, and, it's, and it's, right. it's there. You know Danny Baker's theory about why modern sculpture doesn't work of men? The trousers. The trousers. <laughs> you can't do a sculpture of trousers. That's why the great the sculptures are kind of people marble. in Roman kind of... Yeah. You know, off with a toe so forth. Trousers, completely no, leather true. trousers. Particularly Imagine leather stuff. trousers are particularly <laughs> tough to um, pull no. off in bronze. Yeah. Well, on that <laughs> thrilling fashion note, have we got any questions from the floor of a fashion nature? By all yes. means, <laughs> anybody got any questions? Uh, we go. Yes, you sir. Uh, Inevitable that he would have what? Uh, I think. I mean, I have all these kind of romantic fantasies of what he might have been doing, and. I, I nearly wrote in the book, but I took it out. Uh, that, you know, I could see him at the, with a sort of suede jacket and lots of bangles on, sitting in somewhere like this, actually, with an acoustic guitar and playing kind of jazzy, you know, deconstructed versions of Thin Lizzy hits in a sort of very cool way. I imagine he, he probably would have reformed Thin Lizzy and would be doing the circuit, playing the boys are back in town as we speak. I think, you know, there would still be a market for that. Um, there would be, yeah. I think there would be. And, you know, you can see the similar bands are still doing well. But I think that was... It says, you know, a lot of his friends said when Thin Lizzy ended, that was really the end of him. I think he would have probably re- reformed the band as quickly as he could have, and, and there would have been more of that kind of music. Any more Any questions? more? Any more? Yes, over here, yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't. Well, I, ha- I have spoken to Philomena before, but I didn't speak to her for the book. She's written her own book. I don't know if you're aware of that book called My Boy, which is a kind of memoir of her time. Um, I mean, without going into too much detail, there's there's a fair amount of animosity between some of the family still, so uh, getting all of them on board was not going to be possible. Um, And she has told her story, and as much as she wants to tell of it, I think. I mean, those early years are are pretty murky, and as I say, there's still people involved who are alive, and um, I think you get a a clear flavour in the book of kind of what it was like and what was going on at that time without maybe going into too much really personal detail. But she's an extraordinary woman. I mean, she has done so much for his legacy, I think. You know, the statue was her thing. Um, and I think, you know, he's probably much better known now than he was when he died. Uh, he is now a kind of icon in America as well. So she's had a huge part to play in that. Yeah. What, Philomena? 
He did. I also think, I don't know if you know the song Wild One. Do you know that song? I think that's about her as well. I think that's about her leaving him or him having to leave her when he was young and wanting her to come back. Um, so she, I think she had a, a very mixed influence on his life. You know, she was a, in, in later life, she was incredibly supportive and they were very close, but I think that early wounding was quite but Quite a lot of the time, he, he was brought up by his grandparents, wasn't he? He was brought up by his grandparents, yeah, effectively, yeah. yeah. He was, from the age of seven till... So how did left. she feel about that? She's writing a book called My Boy, about the, you know, the son that she handed over to her. Yeah, <laughs> well, there, that's a very good question. I think there is a, a sense of her trying to justify that decision. Yeah. She, had a, she had a very difficult early life. I mean, it was yeah. that whole Philomena film and that, that whole... She managed to keep, keep hold of Philip. It would have been very easy, I think, to have just let the Catholic Church yeah. whisk him off to Australia. That's a good point. I mean, it, it really would have been. She, she was pressurised into trying to do that. So yeah. she did, you know, she kept her contact with him yeah. and, and made sure he had a good upbringing yeah. in Ireland. So there's a lot for her, I think, to be applauded for. A chance for one more? Yes. Yeah, at the back, yeah. They were, but I mean, he, he was quite, he was kind of accepted by the punks, you know, he hung, well, we'll see, he hung out with a lot, quite old school. He was yeah, yeah, that whole kind of stiff records thing, he was, he was part of that crowd, um, I'm not sure, I mean, a lot of those bands survived punk, didn't they, I think he wanted to be, the problem that he had in the later years was he wanted to be, you know, 77, he wanted to be punk, 78, he wanted to be new wave, 79, he wanted to be new romantic, you know, he was, he was, he was constantly, at that point, chasing the tail of whatever trends were, were coming. And mid-year, I think, was a big part of the, getting him in the band was a big part of saying, what's happening now? Oh, it's keyboardy stuff, so I'm going to get mid in And Yellow Pearl, which was the, you, you might remember, as a theme tune to Top of the Pops. That, That's right. Yeah, which was a mid-year song that he basically... That was the record he was promoting when I met him on that planet, Was it? In 1982. Well, you, know, you heard Midge playing this thing, and he basically said, I'm having that. Yeah. You know, so there was that that sense of him kind of losing or second-guessing his own talent by that point and just yeah. trying to, I think, trying to hang on to the coattails of whatever were happening. And he could never be punk because he just wasn't built that way, was he? A different generation, I think. But some of those songs, Waiting for an Alibi, and, you know, they're, they're quite punky in their energy. But, um, yeah, I think the, 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 the swift turnover of trends by the late 70s, I think, affected them quite badly, yeah. Well, it is a... Um it's what we call a rollicking read. You were saying this earlier. <laughs> if you handed a book to publishers, they nearly always describe it as rollicking. Rollicking. Um, <laughs> even if it's a, a sort of perfectly... Jane Austen, rollicking. rollicking. Jane Austen, exactly. <laughs> to the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. Rollicking. <laughs> rollicking. <laughs> and it is fantastic. It's a really, really good book. It's an incredibly uh, vivid and supercharged story, and it's brilliantly told. And Graham will be signing copies of it. Uh, outside right now. So please uh, show your appreciation for the tremendous Graham Thompson. Thank you very much. Graham Thompson. Thank you very much. And we'll be back here with, uh, with our other guest, David Hepworth, in about 10 or 15 minutes after you've had so a few drinks. Or get whatever. a drink, buy a book, have a free vegetable samosa. your legs, have a samosa. Terry has provided trays of samosas <laughs> for everybody. Bless him. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? 
Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 